Morning. My name is Joe, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 27, 1 through 4. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Courtney Bismick, and this is the New Testament reading found in 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. If we, if we claim we have fellowship with him and live in darkness, we are lying and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. If we claim we have never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. My name is Shane Wormers, and this is the gospel reading found in John 1, 1 through 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear the witness about the light. Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. Just as... Um, I think it's good every once in a while to remind us, you know, when we do the scripture readings, one, it's really wonderful that people from our congregation are reading the, the word of God aloud to us so we can have a way of, of meeting and seeing and getting to know different members of our congregation. But two, we do it up on the stage as a way of reminding us that we stand under the word of God, that the word of God is spoken over us and we stand under it in a place of uh, humility. And three, when, we, when they say the word of the Lord and we say, thanks be to God, <laughs> the, the point is to say, oh my goodness, God speaks to us. That we're not just listening to, oh, these are words on a page. We're saying, wait a minute, the God in whom we believe is a speaking God. And this book that we teach from and that we read and that we listen to every week is a living and active word, amen? So when the person says, the word of the Lord, we say, thanks be to God. God has not left us here clueless, wandering about, roaming in the dark, saying, I wish I knew. No, the word of the Lord comes to us again and again, amen? So next time we, we, we do this, you can say, 
thanks be to God. Okay, and lastly, fourthly, when we stand for the gospel reading, the reason we stand is because these are the words about Jesus. And if we need to know one thing about how to read this book, it is to read it through the lens of Jesus. And so we stand at the gospel reading to say, look, this is the thing that, that, that bears witness to Jesus, the Son of God, and everything else in Scripture points to him and leads back to him. And so that's the way we want to preach. That's the way we want to understand the word. And we stand up as a way of recognizing that. So this morning, we are beginning a series on um, a little letter in the New Testament called 1 John. And if you have paper Bibles, you'll find it near the end. There's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and, and then, you know, Jude and Revelation. But, but it's right, it's right near the end of your paper books. If you have the digital Bibles, you can just go right to it. 1 John, it is. And we'll be in this all the way, uh, more or less, through uh, until Advent, at the end of November. We'll have a couple of um, weeks in between where we're not quite in 1 John. And so before we just dive into the text and open it up and start talking about it, it's worth asking ourselves, well, who is John? Who is this guy that's writing the book? Is this the same John that wrote the gospel? Yes, the longstanding uh, tradition is that the writer of this letter, 1 John, is the same John that wrote the gospel according to John. And he is the, the, he's the disciple that describes himself as the beloved, the one that Jesus loved. He's saying it, of course. Um, he's also the, the last of the apostles to be martyred. So he lives for a really long time. Now, who are these people that he's writing to? Well, we're not, uh, we're not absolutely sure, but it's likely a collection of house churches um, that followed John, that were influenced by John's uh, leadership. And uh, it, it's likely that the hub of these house churches was in the area of Ephesus, now, if you stop and you think for a moment, Ephesus was really blessed to have had some really great leaders because of the, the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul and succeeded, Paul was succeeded by Timothy. And then if you have John, who's kind of potentially one of the leaders in this area, you're like, these guys have just, they've had it good. This is like the buckle of the Bible belt. No, not really. But, you know, they've had the blessing of really good church leaders, Paul, Timothy, John, and then after him. And so John is writing a letter that was meant to be passed around to these different communities, the Johannine communities, some call it, the communities that look to John uh, to form them. But there's one other thing I want to point out to you is as we read this letter, and, and if you kind of read on ahead into 2 John and 3 John, just for context, 2 John and 3 John are really short, just a page basically, um, you'll recognize that John refers to himself from time to time as the elder. And his, one of his favorite ways of talking to these churches is little children. And so you get the impression that this is John later in life. This is John as the elder. And he's talking to these churches and saying, my little children. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about that this week, um, that the gospel transforms the way we understand legacy. See, in the ancient world, the only way your life had any significance was A, if you were married, and B, if you had children, particularly sons, to carry on your legacy. But what the gospel does is it transforms that by saying, listen, you matter just because you are a child of God. You don't have to be married to sort of enter into the, the, the focus of society. You matter because you are a child of God. 
And so you have Jesus, who lives his life unmarried. You have Paul, who does all of his ministry as a single person. And we're meant to understand that, look, legacy is redefined now. But not just with regard to singleness and marriage, but also with regard to children. Now we come to understand that because of the kingdom and because of the gospel, our influence and the ones that, that, that we can invest in, it's, it's more than biological children. So those of you that are parents, rejoice. You can invest in them. But those of you that aren't, that doesn't make you second class. That doesn't mean, well, I have nothing to give. That doesn't mean that you say, well, I, 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 my life doesn't continue beyond me. That's not true. The kingdom says there's a new family that is being formed by Jesus and that all of us have a role in it. I want to return to this theme because we live in an age where we privilege youth and we marginalize the aging. And here is a letter being written by an aging apostle, the last living one. And you might think, well, what's this guy got to say? Plenty. And he keeps writing, keeps investing, keeps saying, you know what? There's something that I have seen. There's something that I have, I can attest to through the course of my life that I'm not going to keep inside. I'm going to pour out into others. You may be sitting here and thinking, well, I don't know if I have children or my children are estranged or they're not listening to me. What am I supposed to do? Listen, are there others in your life? into whom you can begin to pour and invest and to say, what is it that you have seen and heard? Listen to how John opens his letter. We announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have seen and our hands handled about the word of life. The life was revealed and we have seen and we testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also announce it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Why is John saying all this? Many of the commentaries believe that in these congregations, there were two types of, of, of groups that were emerging, okay? One group was the Jewish, a primarily Jewish believer that had a hard time affirming the divinity of Jesus, and so they had a heart, they, they said, well, we can believe Jesus is kind of a rabbi, we can believe he's sort of this prophet, but we're not sure about his pre-existent deity. Now do you see why John opens his letter saying, the one who from the beginning, right, reminds you of the way he opened his gospel. In the beginning was the word. John's intent on helping us see this Jesus is not just human, this Jesus was the, is, the, is the, the one who existed from the beginning. Does that make sense? But this other group that was around in these congregations was a group of Gnostic Christians, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic. And Gnostic Christians were mainly from the Greek background. And what they believed was material things don't matter. Only spiritual things matter. Okay, and we're going to return to this theme over and over again, not only today, but throughout this series. They were convinced that only the spirit and the soul, that's the stuff that was good, and the body and the flesh, it doesn't really matter. So they, had, they didn't have a hard time at all accepting that Jesus was God. What they had a tough time with was that he was actually flesh, that he was human. 
that he ate food, that he slept, that he was tired and hungry and suffered pain. That, was the, the, that seemed like the most offensive or most confusing thing to a Greek mindset. And what does John say here? We've seen him. We've heard him. Our hands have handled him. Like that's an awkward way to introduce a book. Unless you know you're writing to Gnostics who think that Jesus appeared like a spirit or like an angel that was this floating being. And John's saying, no, he was actually human. And because he was actually human, our human life matters. Or to put it another way, matter matters. And there's a whole thing, man, we could do a whole series sometime on how the incarnation changes the way we think about the material world. That Christian hope itself is not a flight out of the material world, but is this moment when we recognize that God has come to dwell with us. And that one day he, his dwelling with us, Revelation, John will say this in the book of Revelation. He'll say, what, the dwelling of God is with humans. And that dwelling will be so powerful that it will result in the defeat of all of God's enemies and it will result in the renewal of creation. Now, I, I, I so badly want to take this rabbit trail, but I won't. <laughs> Because in our day and age where we have been taught for decades that the Christian message is that we'll fly away in the sweet by and by and that we just, we just can't wait to, you know, at Christian funerals we say your soul is going to escape the body like a bird leaving the cage. All of that is Greek, those are Greek ideas. John is trying to say this is the very opposite of that. Because when God came to us, he came to dwell. Flesh. Bone. And then he says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy can be complete. If you think those words are familiar, they are. They appear at the end of John's Gospel where Jesus says, These things I say unto you that your joy may be full. And now John the Apostle is writing his letter saying, And these things I say to you now that your joy may be full. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ into our world. And then the, that's the prologue of his letter. Verse 5 is kind of his thesis. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. Everybody, if they were reading this letter out loud in their house churches, everybody's kind of set their coffee mug down and they're listening now. What is it? What's John going to say? This is it. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God is light. No darkness in him. No shadow in him. Pure light. It's amazing, you know, you read old stories in even current day language. We associate bad things with darkness. You know, know, how many of you, your grandparents said, nothing good ever happens when it's dark, right? We associate darkness with bad things. But light, we think light, there's something wonderful about light. How many of you saw a sunrise this week? Precious few, amen. (laughs) But there's something amazing about it. I mean, if you've ever been camping, right, 
And let's say you had a rough night camping because the wind was howling and the trees were rattling, and you're like me, and so you're imagining bears right outside your tent. So, so, am I alone here? You know, you're imagining all these creatures of the night. And then all of a sudden you see the first little orange bit of sunrise, and the horizon begins to glow. And all of a sudden you think, ah, we made it. It's going to be all right. Who wants breakfast? You know, and then you go home and you're like, I'm, camping was awesome. You know, like, I'm totally a camper, you know. It's because you made it. Light. And John is saying, God is light. All of that sense of relief and hope and joy and safety that we associate with the breaking of light, the breaking of dawn, this is what we are to think of when we think of God. But what does it mean for us? Verse 6 through 10 is where John begins to say, all right, here's what it means for us. If we claim we have fellowship with him and live in the darkness, we are lying and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. And if we claim we do not have, oh, we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. And if we claim we have never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Clearly, the message that John has for these churches and even for us today is God is light and we must live in the light. We must live in the light. This light needs to shine into every part of your life, every corner of your being. And this is the trouble with being a Gnostic. See, for the Gnostics, they were convinced, as long as my spirit is with God, my body can do whatever it wants to do. Now, you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, that's so weird, those crazy first century Gnostics, you know. Right, because we don't have anything like that, right? Right? Do you know, have you ever, how shall I say this without turning us into uh, judgmental people? <laughs> okay, let's say it this way. There is a chance that we can start to think of saying, well, I, my relationship with God is strong, and so God understands if I just need to do this. Okay, I, I had a very sobering email from someone a few weeks back that said her husband for years has basically said, Look, I know I'm married to you, but uh, porn and, and masturbation is just something that Christian men, uh, it's okay. It's just what we need to do. That is not too unlike the Gnostic way of thinking. It's, well, my spirit is right with God, but my body has needs. I'll just, I just need to do what my body needs. And John's saying, you need to come into the light all the way. Let it wash over every party. No, no division, not, not a mystical, spiritual high and that has nothing to do with how you actually do business or, or, or how you actually interact on Facebook or how you actually treat the people around you. It's not a light that doesn't shine on the ordinary, physical, human stuff. It's a light that breaks through all of it. John says you've got to walk in it all the way. Let it break into every part of your life. Every part. Of, don't, don't segment. Don't compartmentalize. Don't just think, well, I, I, I read my Bible, but then I need to do this. 
It shines into the way we do business. It shines into the way we parent. It shines into the way we interact. It shines all through. It breaks all through. But you know, when we think about coming into the light, John himself, a few verses after talking about living in the light, is eventually talking about what? Confession. Confessing our sins. Now, it's, it's really interesting because as I think about this, what is our resistance to confession? Why don't we want to confess our sins? One of the puzzling things for me is that there is a, a kind of a, a relatively new movement that is a, a new resistance to confession. And maybe some of you have heard this. And it goes something like this. It says, well, I don't need, we don't need to confess our sins because everything that we've done has already been paid for at the cross. And so there's already forgiveness. And so Christians never need to confess their sins. You just need to just keep living and you'll be fine. Now, there is enough truth in that to make it appealing, right? What's the true part in that? Jesus has dealt with all of our sins on the cross. That is, in fact, true. But then they say, well, you don't need to actually confess because we are not sinners. We are, we are, we are saints. And someone even said to me, Glenn, John, 1 John was written for, for Gnostics. We don't need to worry about that. Like, we are new in the inside, so we don't ever need to confess anymore. But the trouble is, <laughs> you're not, we're not thinking deeply enough about what it means to be a Gnostic. To be a Gnostic is to say, spiritual realities are all that matter. Instead of saying, yes, my spirit has been made right with God, but I still wrestle with sin. I still do fall. I still do fail. So confession is, a, is not a way of condemning yourself. And confession is not a way of begging God to do something that he hasn't already done, as I point to the cross. Confession is a way of saying, I want to let the light in. I want to let the light take over this corner and this corner and this corner. I want the light to shine on all of it. I love this letter that Martin Luther wrote to his protege, Melanchthon. Very, uh, there's a very famous paragraph in this letter. He says, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but the true mercy. He's saying, don't, don't preach some kind of like imaginary mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. He's saying, look, we have a mercy that is so true and so strong there's no need to kind of say, well, I think I'm, there's sort of this floating sin. I mean, I sort of did that, but I'm not, you know. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. And then here's the line. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Another translation of the German says, sin boldly. But that has often been misunderstood. So, <laughs> Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be be stronger. Oh, I love that. And rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin and death and the world. See, what is Luther saying? He's saying, listen, you don't have to kind of do the imaginary thing of like, well, I mean, I might have done this and perhaps. Luther's saying, look, say the worst of it. Say the deepest, darkest part of it. Let the light into the worst of it, the darkest place of it. Why? Because even if you let your sin be strong, let your trust in Christ be stronger. 
Jesus has come to redeem us, to cleanse us, not of small pity, you know, kind of things that we just sort of make up, you know, along the way. No, 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 no. Let the Spirit of God shine the light deeper. Go ahead and confess the thing that is at the very bottom of your behavior. Go ahead. I don't have to be afraid of this. More likely, we are afraid of confession because we are afraid of being shamed. More likely, we're afraid of confession because we think that if God is light, then he's like the police searchlight. And it's like a bad episode of Cops or something, you know? The searchlight comes and you're like, oh, no, busted. Or maybe you're thinking of some bad memories where, you know, someone turned the lights on and you were caught doing something. You're, oh, hey, oh. So light has these resonances for you of shame. So why don't I want to come into the light? Why don't I want to confess? Because I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be, I I, I just, I don't need that, man. I don't want to come to church and be shamed. I understand that. But actually, John says something very different happens when we confess our sins. He says when we confess our sins, when we walk in the light, he says, one, verse seven, you're going to find fellowship with one another. Do you know it's pretty difficult to live in actual fellowship with one another when you're hiding things even from God, right? We're working really hard here in our, in our little church community and our meal groups and all this to say, let's be a trustworthy community so that when we say blessed, broken, given, that word broken is the permission to be vulnerable, Is there permission to be humble? But see, that fellowship with one another on the horizontal level isn't possible if you haven't come into the light on the vertical level. Paul says, I mean, John says, excuse me, so used to teaching Paul. John says, when you confess before God, you're then able to come into fellowship with one another. (laughs) Because you can realize that everyone else is coming into the light too. It's one of the reasons we do corporate confession here on a Sunday morning is so that you can remember we all still need the light of God's grace to shine on us. We all do. I do. You do. I pray this prayer of confession with you every week. We do this together. But then John says, not only do you find fellowship with one another, but you actually, you find cleansing from all sin. Sometimes I'll listen to, you know, voices that are trying to, um, people that are teachers, speakers that are trying to talk to us about guilt and shame, and, and often the best that a, a non-Christian teacher or speaker can say is, tell yourself not to be ashamed. Okay, but that's sort of like saying to the couch with the coffee stain on it, couch, tell yourself not to have the stain on it. I, I, I. Or sometimes counselors say, you, you've got to forgive yourself. I understand the meaning behind that phrase, but I think it would be more true to the gospel to say, recognize that you have been cleansed. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse you. See, we can't remove our own stains, can we? We can't cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness. And John's saying, look, you can, you can as, our, as our kind of contemporary age has done, you can redefine sin, 
You can tell yourself to not be ashamed, but what's going to remove the stain of that guilt? What's going to remove that? John says, if you come into the light, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that Jesus has already given his life for you. You're going to find a Jesus who removes all that unrighteousness. And maybe coming into the light is not like a bad episode of Cops. Maybe coming to the light is a little bit like what happens when my kids have a bad dream. A couple nights ago, Jonas woke up just screaming, just having this night terror. And you walk in the room and you're trying to console him and you're like, ah, he's still, he's out of it. He's out of it. What are we doing? And all of a sudden you turn on the light. And you turn on the light and you say, buddy, 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 you're fine. You're right here. You're home. Dad's here. The monsters are gone. And I think John is saying, come into the light. The monsters are gone. The accuser is gone. Come into the light. You're home. Dad's here. The father of lights is here. Come into the light. John is the gospel writer who, of all the, of all the four gospels, he's the only one that tells us the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. The woman who very much could have felt like, spotlight, searchlight, woo-woo, busted. And yet John says, what does the light of the world say to her when his light shines on her sinful mess? The light of the world speaks and says, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Turn on the light. Where are the monsters? They're gone. Where are the accusers? They're not here. Where are the condemning voices? Nowhere to be found. Who's here? The light is here. Come into the light. I think John was able to say this not just out of, you know, theological knowledge or theory. John said this because this was his story. If this is the John whom the Gospels tell us about, then this was a John who at one point wanted to call down fire from heaven on a city. This was a John whose mom wanted he and his brother to get the seats of honor and power next to Jesus when he came into the kingdom. This is a John who thought about ego and power and judgment. This was a John who somehow met Jesus and it all began to change. And now John the elder says, little children, come into the light. Come into the light. John's gospel is so beautiful because unlike the synoptic gospels, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's gospel has these prolonged private conversations that Jesus has. Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has all these parables. Mark has a bunch of miracles and quick sayings because Mark's in a hurry. John has these long personal conversations that people keep having with Jesus that end up being transformational. Nicodemus. The woman at the well, Martha, Mary, John 11, Lazarus, Pilate, after the resurrection, Thomas, put your hands in my hands, Peter, after Peter has 
denied Jesus. Think about this. John is the one who records personal moment with Jesus after personal moment with Jesus. Why? Because I think John understands this. This Jesus who is the light of the world, whom we saw and heard, whom we have seen and heard, this Jesus is a Jesus who finds you and wants to speak to you and wants to shine his light on your life so that you can be changed. That's what John knew. And that's what John wants us to know. St. Augustine, in his sermons on 1 John, is quick to point out that John the Apostle uses we language at the end of this chapter. We know that God is faithful and just. We. Isn't it amazing? He could have said, now guys, you better confess your sins. It's a we, we, we. Because even John the Elder knew we're always still a we before Jesus. We're always still together a people that are in need of this grace and this light. Always in need of an advocate. But the good news, church, is that we have one. The Old Testament reading this morning was from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now hear it through the lens of Jesus. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? See, if you say, well, he's just my light, then you're thinking, well, I'm going to be exposed. But he's my light and my salvation. Therefore, of whom shall I be afraid? 